Welcome to How I Raised It, the podcast that goes behind the scenes with entrepreneurs who've raised capital. We uncover the tips, tricks, and techniques they use to get investors to write a check. Strap in and turn it up. Hi, welcome to another episode of How I Raised It, produced by Honorsuite.com. Today I have Ryan Boyko, CEO of Embark Vet, coming to us from Boston. How's it going there, Ryan? Uh, it's great. Uh, beautiful summer day here. Boston gets pretty hot in the summer, right? I've only been there in the fall. Yeah, I, I actually think I, I said that, but I think it's actually really humid out there, but I haven't been outside since like 8.30 in the morning, so I don't... <laughs> it seems beautiful through the way. Probably pretty humid, though. <laughs> yeah. Good stuff. Yeah. I went there last, uh, last fall, caught a, uh, some baseball and you know, it's, it's a fun town for sure. Um, are you a native Bostonian? No, my dad was in the army, so moved all over the place. I, uh, first time I lived in Boston was in, in college and I, uh, I've kind of bounced around since then. Uh, I've come back here a couple of times and gone California, Texas, and, and things, but uh, Connecticut. But uh, yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful town. I'm actually going to the Red Sox Yankees game uh, on Saturday. Nice. So taking my son. Nice. Fun. Yeah. It's a special ballpark for sure. Um, yeah. Cool. All right. Well, let's get into it. So tell us about Embark. What do you guys do? What is Embark? Uh, so we do comprehensive dog genetic testing. So we um, tell people what breeds are in their dog. Obviously, that's a, a lot of people are interested in that. Um, also, the traits and over 160 health conditions. Um, so, you know, in, in many ways, it's, it's similar in concept to what the human genetic testing companies you've probably heard of um, do. Uh, we have a whole extra segment of customers who are breeders who don't really exist in the same way in the, in the human space. So, um, so you know, there there's a lot of uh, a lot of interest on their side to actually being able to use this to breed healthier dogs. So in some ways, it's uh, I find it more more exciting than the the human um, uh, companies, and, and certainly more fulfilling because uh, you know we have we're making dogs healthier today. And of course, there's you know 23andMe and GlaxoSmithKline just signed a deal that you know, for long-term benefit. And I think there's great potential there, but um, we get to impact dogs today. Yeah. Interesting. No, it's definitely a, a cool concept. I was doing a little research on you guys beforehand. Um, yeah. It's, so breeders are, are breeders your primary customer or is it both breeders and just owners of dogs who maybe no, got a mutt? Uh, yeah, it, it's both. We got a lot of um, people interested in, in what's in their mutt. Um, and we also, they sometimes get health results that, that help them guide uh, treatment and prevention in their dogs too. But, uh, but a lot of them first come to us with what's in my dog. And, you know, that's maybe two thirds or so of our business. And, and the other third is, is either breeders or people showing dogs or, or even just um, owners of purebred dogs who, who know that the dog is that breed, but are interested in the health and the trade information. Can it tell you, like, this dog has a predisposition to get hip dysplasia or something like that? Or is it more, like, what are the examples? That's one of the three uh, most asked things that, that we can't do yet. But um, that's, um, I'm sure you're going to ask about origin stories later. So I'll, I'll punt on part of the 
answer to that, but we certainly are interested in being able to, to tell those. So, so no to hip dysplasia specifically, but yes to things like bladder stones, um, to a lot of neurological conditions, to, to uh, adult onset blindness several different ways, um, you, you know, uh, a number of other things, and, and drug sensitivity. So, you know, some of the results, it's, it's uh, as easy as just not giving particular drugs at the veterinarian's office to your dog. Um, so, yeah. Got it. So, so uh, we're in the market for a dog. We had a Chesapeake Bay Retriever for 13 years who was the best. But now my family is determined they want a doodle, a, a poodle mix. How do you feel about poodle mixes? <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is a politically fraught uh, question in the circles I run in now. Yeah. Um, our, uh, our VP of marketing has a doodle, actually. Um, I don't know. I, I'm a softie for all dogs. So, you know, put a, put a dog in front of me and, and I'll be happy. But, um, but yeah, I, uh, I mean, my own dog's in life, so I'm not uh, a particular uh, purist for any, any one breed or another. But they certainly, um, I think the, the perception is that people get doodles and don't really know what they're getting into. It's like a, a starter dog. <laughs> and so I think some of the, the breeders, uh, don't uh, kind of bristle at that concept, and and obviously they've kept their breed pure for 150 years. Uh, right. But but you know, um, I, I I think to each their own. There's uh, a lot of different kinds of families with a lot of different kinds of needs. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm philosophically opposed to it, but I have a feeling I'm going to be bending to the will of my wife and kids before too long. So. Um, there's nothing like children for uh, really testing your philosophical limits. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cool, man. Um, so let's talk about origin story. So how'd you come up with this idea? Did you just see the 23andMe and say, hey, I could do this for dogs, or is there a story? Yeah, no. Um, I mean, in, in addition to just loving dogs growing up, I was the third of, of three boys, so, like, there's almost no photos of me as a child, but when we moved around, you know, like, mo most of the photos are of me, like, hugging some neighbor's dog or our dog or whatever. Um, so, so there's that, um, but I, you know, when I was in college, I, I wanted to do biology. I uh, also took a lot of kind of big data, computer science to as tools, but um, but I was thinking more of primates or that kind of thing. But I took a a seminar uh, my senior spring in dog um, evolution and cognition, and uh, it was a really fascinating class. But the biggest takeaway was, wow, we've we've looked at the genetics of a very very small sliver of these kind of purebred, mostly European dogs, and now they're having all these debates about dog health, dog evolution, you know, all this kind of thing. And um, and it would be like if you sampled the royal family of Europe and you then said, okay, well, now we've got all the genetic samples we need to understand humans. We just need to analyze them different ways. Yeah. You know, obviously not true. And um, but but that idea was not really accepted, you know, wasn't widely accepted in the dog genetics community. At, the, at that point, it was a lot of um, kind of cutting edge geneticists who weren't interested in field work or anything. I was 21, loved the field, all of that, right? Um, so I, I said, well, you know, really we should test these village dogs that kind of live around the world and haven't undergone these strict breeding and all of that. And it took me uh, two years to eventually, so I, I actually convinced my brother, who had just gotten a PhD in biology, 
and he was working for a geneticist and and uh, he convinced the professor, it took a couple years, but he convinced the professor this was a good idea. And the professor turned to him, though, and says, well, where are we going to find somebody crazy enough to actually go around the world and capture feral dogs and take their blood? And my brother said, well, I know, I know the person. So, uh, so I, I started out in Africa, actually. Wow. Um, we, we did a, I did a summer all throughout Africa collecting blood from dogs. Uh, and uh, I, I mean, there's a million stories that go with that, but less relevant to your audience, probably. <laughs> How many times did you get bit? Let's just go with that one little. Yeah, well, in total, so I only got, um, I got uh, even moderately bit only once, really, and, and that was a few years later. Um, and, and it was just, you know, the carelessness that comes with the, the whole day of full of work and you've done it for a while, and you, right? And I just, uh, I let a dog get around and, and bite on my thumb. And, you know, it was, it was bad enough that, like, the nail fell off and stuff like that. And I was in a remote Indian village at the time. And, and uh, so, you know, but, but it, wasn't, it wasn't so bad. Um, I got a, a nick on the back of my leg once. But, yeah, for the most part, I, I uh, managed to, to avoid it. I, I got slimed with every substance you can imagine a dog might be in. And I got... You know, there are fleas all over me and ticks and everything, but Whoa. but uh, not bit a lot. That's um, crazy. So you went around the world sampling all these wild feral feral dogs, and and that was the basis of the database, or I, I guess what was the point of that exercise? Yeah. So that did, um, yeah. So um, after that first summer, it was really successful. We got a paper, we got written up in the New York Times, Science, all that kind of stuff, um, and. So the project kind of took on a bit more of a life of its own. I actually went and did a bunch of, of things in public health and big data, actually like entrepreneurship in a big consulting firm for a little while um, and, and, um, and that kind of stuff. Uh, but I kept working like a month or two a year uh, each summer on this. And my brother took over the project. Um, he really pushed it forward. He got um, hired as a professor of dog genetics at Cornell in 2011. Um, and then he took on more and more projects, uh, and, and kind of that right around that 2011 was when we started talking about, you know, where somebody should really make a company like this for dogs. There's, it's sad that, you know, nobody's building this database that's going to help dog health and all of this in, in this way. And, you know, the grants that, that he could get were, you know, a couple orders of magnitude smaller than what, what the big kind of human genetics, um, uh, you know, work got and that kind of stuff. Uh, so it wasn't big enough to, to test, you know, hundreds of thousands of dogs and follow them or anything like that. Um, but yeah, and, and it took till 2015 till it was kind of, it was the right moment in my life. It was the right, um, in his life, it was the, the, the Supreme Court, um, kind of the gene patent cases, obviously, made some things about starting a company like this easier where you can't um, patent a specific association of, you know, if you have a T here, then you have a higher risk of, you know, this disease or something like that. Um, so, so that obviously made it a lot easier to think of how, how you release a panel test that kind of tells you everything. Um, and, uh, and, and yeah, we looked at several business factors and uh, decided to make the leap in 2015. Cool. 
Okay, let's go to the fundraising part. So you guys recently raised uh, a round, right? So I guess, did you bootstrap it in the early days or just use grants? How was it funded early on? Yeah, so early on, um, and this is, uh, you know, I, I'm going to tell it like it is, which is a little un un unfortunate in the, in the sense of, of me. I mean, there's lots of ways to do this. But um, so when we had the idea and, and when we actually decided so we spent a little bit of time looking into well you know do we try to build a product and sell it to another company is this really a company what does this plan look like what do we do right and when we had convinced ourselves that wow this is you can actually build a real business on the back of this it's not just one test and that's what you're going to do but it opens up a lot of avenues a, a lot of uh, a lot of ways to kind of build a bigger company and it excited us so uh, within a week of when we, we decided, yep, we're definitely going to do this, I actually had my 10-year reunion at Harvard. So this is one of those unfortunate things that I, I can't tell you how to rebuild this. But um, at that reunion, I, uh, I was sitting with a, a few people I knew well back in college, um, one of whom happened to be the, co or, sorry, the founder of uh, Blue Apron and CEO Matt Salzberg. So, you know, we're kind of talking about what we were doing and, and I mentioned, you know, I'm, I'm uh, finishing up at Yale and I think I'm going to go and, and, you know, I'm going to go and do this. And then he was asking questions. He, got, he had just, uh, just bought a dog himself, actually. Uh -huh. It was like one of those, the right moment in time. And, um, and so we wound up talking for a while uh, and he got really excited by the idea. He introduced me to a couple of other people he knew who, who, um, did venture investing at the that night, and um, and then he actually, he, despite being CEO of Blue Apron, he he took on a role where he was probably given eight hours of advice a, a week for several months. Wow! Um, you know, I, I'd, I'd call and talk to him kind of late into the night, and um, and so he he was uh, on the founding board. He's still on the board. He's still very involved. Um, he, uh, and, and he put in a, a very small kind of feed check, but right when we incorporated to, to do a little bit of legal work, obviously, and then to hire our first bioinformatics programmer. Um, and then between, uh, a kind of angel fund that he was involved in, and then some of the people that he had introduced me to, I raised money, uh, I raised the first real funding. Um, you know, it was a, a million and a half bucks at the time to, uh, from them. And then a few people, those people introduced me to, so it wasn't, it wasn't as easy as I just talked to a couple people one night, but, um, certainly that first round came together a lot easier for me than, than for a lot of people. I still in the, you know, to raise the, so kind of, he was responsible for a half million, the per amount of people he introduced me two was responsible for about a half million and the, the third half million did involve, you know, several calls to some people who wound up being interested, some who didn't, you know, all the, all of that. Um, and it was a good introduction to that world, but, um, but yeah, I, I unfortunately, um, or, or fortunately for me, don't have the, the same kind of hardship, uh, story of, <laughs> of struggling in the wilderness for years to get the first money. Right. <laughs> there was a thing, it's going around social media yesterday about how 40% of VCs went to either Harvard or Stanford. So I guess the hack, if there is one, is just go to Harvard or Stanford, 
right? There, there we go. <laughs> well, well, if I can give you a hack, though, the, you know, I, I saw that and that analysis um, lumped together undergrad and graduate school. Uh-huh. So I guess the, the positive message, if you want to call it that, is even if you didn't go there for undergrad, if you go there, uh, if you can get into a graduate program there, then maybe you can get the same kind of uh, advantage. <laughs> um, sure, just like that. Um, no, that would be uh, <laughs> that would be great. Um, okay, so and then more recently, if, if PitchBook is correct, I thought this was kind of unusual, but the number PitchBook is showing is six million six hundred and sixty-six six point six six, which I thought was. Uh, it's ominous in some ways. Did you just, yeah. Yeah, no, well, so the reason why the number is like that is because uh, I guess in the filings, right, they take the interest. So that first round of convertible notes, uh-huh. and I guess they take the interest when they convert. So then we raised the price round last summer. Uh, <laughs> and so, but of course the, so what PitchBook is, is, um, has is the price round plus the, the principle of the convertible notes plus the interest when they converted. Oh. So that's why it's kind of a number. That's why it's 666. Gotcha. I thought yeah. maybe there was exactly. some other ominous thing there, but it, um, so tell us about raising that. No, so, I, I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I was just telling my daughter about the omen. Remember the omen? I don't, did you ever watch the original omen where he's got to like, digging his hair to find the little uh, birthmark anyway too tangential yeah um uh so, okay so. so you might be asking this but i just to, to uh for the the viewers though i will say raising the, the price round was uh was still quite the struggle you know tell I, us about I, that <laughs> yeah no tell walk us through that because i think that would be very interesting to hear so that was um you know, tell us how you approached it. I mean, you had uh, that seed round. I assume you used the seed round to build a product, get some market proof points, and then tell us about deciding to go raise money. And, and how, did you run a process? How did you build your funnel? All that good stuff, please. Yeah, we ran a process. And um, I mean, at the again, and, and this is generally applicable advice, you know, if you have um good angel investors um so if you've been able to move beyond friends and family unless you're very connected uh in your friends and family uh and, and you have um, real angel money like hopefully your funnel starts and is largely comprised of people who they know who like them and who um you know who trust their instincts right i mean just like just like anything in life if you want your dream job find somebody who is working at the company ideally as high up as possible <laughs> become, you know, get them to really love you. And then you're, you're much more likely to be successful. Right. And it's the same thing with, with, uh, in, uh, with investors. Um, and, and maybe even more so because, um, at least for me, my background isn't in finance and, uh, you know, and this is my first company. So I also don't have much of an independent impression of, of, you know, hundreds of VCs. Um, so, so it was very helpful for me to obviously to get the warm introductions, but also to be able to get perspectives from our current investors, um, of, of who would be a good fit, um, personality wise, as well as, you know, they, they have dry powder, they write the size of check and they, you know, might like this industry. Um, 
the, so, so, I mean, that's, that's, that's at the heart of it. If you, I mean, if you want to raise real VC money from real VCs, um, I think that's, you almost have to do that. Um, you're going to have, it's going to be a tough road to hoe if you're just making cold introductions on your own behalf. So did you, um, did you identify kind of a target list of investors first and then circulate it to your angels or did you just go to your angels and say, who should we be talking to? Like what's the sort of, you know, actual tactical approach? Uh, I did both. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, so we, uh, we made, I made, um, yeah, it was actually almost all me, but I made a list of uh, investors who, you know, so I, I kind of looked around PitchBook, I looked around um, uh, a few other, you know, a few other places. And, and um, also, you know, I, I get emails from, uh, I'm trying to remember all the listeners now, but, you know, a few different lit, like PitchBook type um, things and you kind of pay attention to the names that you hear and the spaces that are similar. I, you know, of course, looked at who had invested in um, Rover, WAG, Dog VK, as well as um, dog and uh, pet insurance companies and, and things like that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, there, there weren't, and and also for that matter, I looked at who invested in uh, Ancestry and Twenty Three and Me. Yep. Um, as well as kind of uh, pharma type things, and and to, you know to be blunt, I think, and I thought at the time, those are probably better future round investors than a than a seed. You know, um, first we have to be commercially successful to be able to play in pharma, for example. You know, uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. when your database is a couple thousand dogs you're not gonna you know be worth much for the pharmaceutical you know uh play but um but but it did help to kind of start the process of looking at them uh i circulated the the list to a a kind of core group of investors so like my um obviously matt who's on our board but then you know a, a few other of the very biggest um i mean we took notes from there were there were some kind of friends and family involved too so you know there were three bigger investors and and probably like five smaller investors at that point um and so so i had a call with individually with each of the bigger ones after i'd given them the list and they added names um and they gave notes on the people that i had put on some of them kind of went up and some went down um and uh and then i circulated it to the all of the current investors um and got a little bit more feedback mm-hmm. um but to be honest most smaller investors are less connected let know less about that community anyway yeah. um and then uh yeah and then i so once i had that list i i i went around again and i said okay well you know put your name in this you know in column T or whatever, you know, if, if you think you have a really good connection and tell me, you know, what the connection is, and then I can pick out who the best person to introduce me to each of them is. So that was to get the foot in the door. What, um, how long do you think that list was? What was the top of your funnel? I always like to kind of have a quantitative lens to this. Um, I'm actually, I'm trying to remember now who at the beginning of the I've been much more thinking about my, my next round, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there were, to be, so, so, I mean, what it was, there were, there were about seven that were in the first tier of um, people we, we wanted to talk to. Um, 
and uh, and to be to be blunt, I uh, some of them are, are are very good leads for the next round and things, and I, I don't know that I want to completely dive into who's who. Sure, that's um, fine. It wasn't one. That I didn't have my heart set on one. There was there were about seven that were in the like uh, I'd really love for it to be one of these. Um, and then as I did calls with people, you know, again, some people moved up, some people moved down the list. You see who seems genuinely interested, um, you know, and, and like they could be helpful in all of this. It's, um, I mean, it's a little bit like speed dating. It's a, it's even though you have more than five minutes with somebody, I mean, if yeah. you have five or 10 hours with somebody and 90% of that time is devoted to you convincing them that they want to invest in you and the other 10% is more of a sales pitch from an investment person who may or may not be highly involved with you later. It's, it's hard to judge what's going to happen, sure. you know, in the future. Yeah. So with, with the warm introductions um, and the kind of having uh, cultivated a list that we thought was, was the right list, um, I, I had a very high success rate in getting, first and even second, third, fourth conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, and the hard part was is, uh, that, um, you know, there's been a couple year at least uh, trend in where Series A are. What, you know, it, it, it's no longer like a, a first investment and it's often no longer even a first investment after seed. Yeah. It's not, you know, it's, and, um, and so when we had actually planned out our business plan and we had talked extensively with Matt um, and then, a, you know, and, and a few other advisors, they, essentially the message they gave us was, well, you know, get to a hundred thousand a month in sales and then you raise a series A. So your target is, you know, you have this much money, make a plan that's going to get you to a hundred thousand uh, a month in sales and then raise more money on the back of that. And yeah. that's what they're, um, that's what they're going to look for. And, um, you know, and obviously have a thought out business plan and, you know, other things are important too, but essentially if you can use a little bit of seed money to get to that point and you look like, you know what you're doing, then that's, that's the hurdle to cross to get a series A. So when we were at 150 K a month in sales, we were going into this process, we were pretty pumped and saying, you know, okay, you know, this, this should go well. Um, and, and, you know, what we found is that the bar over the previous 12 to 18 months had, had, uh, risen, let's say. Um, and, and it seemed like it was closer to three to 500,000 a, a month in, in sales was the numbers, but, you know, people are like, oh, okay, so now you got a 5 million run rate. Okay. That's, that's maybe a business that I can believe that can scale. And again, it's, it's very specific to what you're doing. So if yeah. you're, you're in um, self-driving vehicles or AI or, or any business where, where a VC looks at it and says, okay, well, that's a $5 trillion business or even, you know, or even a $500 billion business. So I believe that that business as a whole, you know, that, sorry, that, that whole, uh, that industry, I mean, as a whole is that big. Maybe I, maybe I don't need you to, to do things to convince me that this is more than a niche product. You just need to convince me you're going to win. Yeah. And maybe that's less tied to your current revenues. But certainly if what you're trying to do is build out a new category um, or, you know, a, a product line that 
uh, or service line that isn't currently a big market. Um, it, it seemed like they needed more than, than a one and a half million dollar run rate to, to believe in it. So mm -hmm. the frustrating experience I had was that many people were very intrigued by the idea um, and, and actually spent a lot of their time with me. Um, and, um, and, you know, because nobody, none, not a single um, partner at a VC firm I talked to had, was any kind of expert in the dog genetics business. And they really weren't experts in veterinary business. There's, you know, there's, it's not a big VC type area, veterinary clinics or anything like that, uh, or veterinary medicine for that matter, really. Um, and, um, and then there, we're also kind of the pet care space. And obviously there's more VC interest in that and it's picked up a, a decent bit. But trying, you know, trying to kind of wrap their heads around how do we value the, the, the kind of pharmaceutical and data opportunity along with the consumer and the pet consumer and all of that? Um, it, it was, um, I think the narrative was hard for them to feel like they could wrap themselves around entirely. Mm -hmm. So it was like you have eight meetings with, with people and then, you know, you get a call that like, oh man, I'm still so excited about this, but I couldn't convince a couple of the partners in the group who felt like we don't know anything about this area. And, um, you know, and some of it's letting, letting you down easy, but some of it's also, you know, I, I definitely got back channeled that at least at a few places, it, it really was that, you know, half the partner group was extremely excited and half were like, you know, we don't, we don't know how to value this. Um, and, uh, yeah. And so it, the, the process dragged on for quite some time and, and it makes it hard to run a business at the same time that you're running a, a fundraising process. Yeah. Um, yeah. So one piece of advice, and certainly if you can afford it, um, either have a really wonderful co-founder who is can can do operations very well and, and keep everything moving forward or or you know hire somebody or or something to really um manage what's going on um because you know no, nothing terrible happened but I, I feel like we lost some opportunities to grow to to make good hires and things like that while i was um busy fundraising um, were you kind yeah. of, were you banging on it pretty much full time for a period of time? And if so, how long, like what was your sort of level of commitment over what period of time did you have to go into? Cause this is something that I think a lot of founders underestimate, right? They don't realize that you kind of have to, uh, go all in. So what was your experience like? Yeah. Um, I would probably say it was 75% of my effort for three months. Mm -hmm. Um, and not, not only is it just for, and, and that's saying my, my whole effort there is more than 40 hours a week. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, but, um, but, um, you know, cause, cause you know, there, you can't underestimate how much, um, and first of all, there's, there's a lot of travel and if you, um, you know, I, you're always going to connect better with people. You're always going to improve your odds if you're face to face with them. So you don't want to not travel and then, you know, wonder afterwards, 
was it because I didn't meet this person? Now, I mean, don't take that to extremes. I almost everybody, my first interaction with them was a phone call. But, you know, I tried as much as possible if they were interested in a second and certainly by the third meeting to be out and usually in San Francisco, but sometimes other places um, and, and get get some time with them in person. And and um, you don't understand, like they're they're very busy people who know that you need them more than they need you at, the, at that moment. Um, and so. Um, so it's not only that, but I mean, you're out in San Francisco and then you have a meeting that afternoon and, and somebody's uh, EA, you know, emails you an hour before the meeting and says, oh man, something came up, I can't do it today, but how about tomorrow? Okay, I'll guess I'll change my flight home, I'll get another night at the hotel and, you know, and all this, right? And, yeah. uh, you know, I, I stayed at that four points by Sheridan by the uh, airport in SFO for more nights than I care to remember <laughs> due to that. Because then you're like kind of midway between Menlo Park, San Fran. And, but um, yeah. There, there's a so, little hack. Yeah. Four points, Sheraton in between the two centers. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> what, would you stack a bunch of, um, you know, would you line up like, hey, I'm going to be out in San Francisco for this next week. And would you line up a dozen meetings in, the, in a week or kind of approach it like that? Yeah, I, I certainly try to do that, but again, there's a lot of flexibility that, that yeah. you know I I had to have, and um, yeah, so yes, I, I mean I, I tried to optimize as best as I could. Um, it was also in the winter, so there were also um, travel delays and getting stuck in Cincinnati and things like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, cool. I wanted to ask about um, a couple specific. Like I, SV Angel, I noticed was on uh, on the cap table or, or at least listed on PitchBook. Were they in the that first one point five million round or the 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 late the second round? No, they were they were in the second round. Um, so we wound up having Founder Collective out of Boston lead, and uh, Eric Paley's on our board now, and, and he was the the force behind the investment. And um, and I, I do want to say, as painful as the pro. Uh, process felt um and uh, you know and this is me by the way coming off of a, a very easy first round too mm -hmm. of, of raising funds so uh yeah to your point of not underestimating um just because you uh have have success at one point doesn't always mean that it's going to be easy from there on out um but uh um so founder collective wound up leading the round and uh and they as a whole and Eric in particular have been absolutely fantastic and I can't yeah, you know, I can't recommend them more highly. Um so and 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 so what happened basically is we, we wound up getting uh, a term sheet from them and um and doing a bit of bit of negotiation on it and then uh and then kind of once we signed the term sheet, um you know, the shark tank, all the sharks uh, circling the the water, right? Uh, uh -huh. You know, all uh, all uh, becomes a you know. Once the first one goes, then it's like a feeding frenzy. So um, they, uh, you know, w once we got the the term sheet signed, and um, you know, and they were actually only going to do a um, put in a minority of the investment that we're taking. I mean, it's a, a large minority, but but a minority. Um, the, 
we actually wound up, I think, with in the next two weeks, partially with introductions they made, but partially with other folks that we had already talked to. Um, you know, I think I think we wound up with four times as much money um, pledged as as we could take, and so then I had to go back and and uh, kind of whittle people away and and cut down how much people were investing in. Yeah, that's exciting. Let's talk about that for a minute. So you, I mean, that was the catalyst to get sort of the feeding frenzy going. You you, you went around to everyone you're talking to and like, hey, we've signed a term sheet. You know, did you kind of force people's hand? Are you in or out? Or how would you tip it? Yeah, it's a, that's a good uh, question. So, um, um, so there were there were three kinds of people we talked to. I guess you could divide it two. And so one was um, kind of smaller seed round focused funds, so like Founder Collective. Um, one was a, a small number of strategic. Um, kinds of, of partners, smaller investors, or, or not even necessarily, but people who I thought we might be able to turn to at specific moments and get help in specific ways. Um, you know, and, and, and so certainly people who have been in the uh, commercial VT, you know, uh, direct consumer um, DNA testing. Um, and and uh, some kinds of you know, pet care related people, things like that. And then the the third uh, kind were kind of bigger funds who um, at the start we were more focused on, but you know, the, your, your uh, Sequoias and NEAs and, and um, Kleiners of the world, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, and so essentially that third group, we, we didn't talk to again, because the idea was that you know, it, even if they sign it on, and, and some of them actually proactively express an interest of like, oh, you know, we also will add in smaller amounts and then we can see how, you know, keep a relationship going. Um, the, the advice given to me, which I think is good advice, is, well, you know, if they don't want to sign a term sheet and they don't want to leave, then keep them hungry. You mm. know, they, they, have plenty of, they have plenty of money. They can, uh, they can lead the next round if they, if they feel like they missed out. But, um, but you know, kind of, Playing um, uh, the, the the advice given to me was you're no more likely and probably less likely to get them to lead a, a subsequent round if they feel like they've already got some skin in the game and they're already around and they won't have missed the opportunity entirely, you know, and all of that. Um, so so we really didn't didn't talk to them again, but we went back to to several of the people in the other two categories. Yeah. Uh, and as well as the people that Eric introduced us to who were, again, not, not big um, funds that typically lead, you know, series A through E, but, um, but kind of smaller ones. I guess that's where you picked up, uh, I'm not sure if I know how to pronounce her name, but Ann Wojcicki, uh, the 23 Yeah. Yeah, the 23 and Me founder, right? Yep, yep. That's great. Now, can yeah. you tap, can you lean on here? I mean, that's, that's a great strategic, I guess you could say. Uh, how do you leverage that relationship or is that more of a, a card you're holding in, in your vest until you need to play it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've, I've had a few conversations uh, with Anne. She's, she's very smart, very, uh, obviously very talented and accomplished and, and, and you know, has 
um, been there and, and, and done it. Um, and so, yeah, she's, she's a helpful, a very great person to talk to. Um, I mean, she's got more energy than just about anyone I've ever, ever met. And so, um, so a conversation with her, like afterwards, you, you all, uh, you feel a little like, um, almost like you've been hit by a truck, but in a good way, you're like, (laughs) Oh my God, I have to, you know, like I'm unpacking all of, all of these things. Um, and, uh, you know, you go in with an idea of what you want to ask about and then you wind up, you know, you were, she's excited about something and, and you spend a while talking about something and you're like, how do I, is that, is that relevant? Is that a, something I can work with? Um, but, uh, but yeah, no, she's, she's great. Um, and, um, you know, and, and then obviously, uh, Bill Maris is section 32. Um, you know, so, uh, oh, yeah. Bill and Ann actually go back. Um, they worked in the same office, the same exact like four person office, uh, their first job, uh, like two decades ago or more. So, um, so they were, they were helpful, um, both with each other, but also, um, you know, Bill, Bill has a wonderful mind. He's, he's one of the most giving of his time of, uh, of people, you know, you, you send him an email. I mean, he's a small investor in, in Bart compared to some of the investments he's made, but you get a response, a thoughtful response within three or four hours, basically every time and happy to jump on the phone and, That's great. and, uh, and yeah. And he was formerly Google Ventures, right? Or am I mixing, uh, am I confusing? Yeah, he founded, he founded Google Ventures. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Great. Amazing. And, and how about SB Angel? Is that still Ron Conway or is it his son, Topher, or, or who, who's running SV Angel these days? Um, the person I talk to the most there is Topher. Mm. Um, I honestly can't say that I know their ownership structure exactly or, or what the exact internals are. But, um, but Topher definitely is the one who's most active in terms of sending emails and everything else. Um, okay, like two more questions. I'll let you get back to, to business. Um, so you're, you're kind of thinking ahead. Um, I guess uh, you don't have to give anything you don't want to share, but are you already starting to put together the next round or how are you approaching your next round? Or you have these bigger funds that you sort of took off. Are you re-engaging with them or what's your strategy? Um, yeah, I... I, I uh... I occasionally have conversations with, with people there, but just to kind of, you know, keep up a little bit, um, where we are definitely, um, thoughtful about how to, um, well, let me, let me frame it this way. I'm very much, uh, focused on how do I make this a, um, big business and, and a very successful business and um, and we sell a, a product that has a positive um, you know contribution margin so theoretically if I can sell enough of them then I never have to take another dollar of investment again mm-hmm. <laughs> so my um, my first goal is uh, uh, you know my first second and third goals are to figure out how to get more people to buy them profitably yep and uh, and I, I spend most of my time, you know, 80% of my time at least, 
thinking about that and, and working with my team on that. And, and really, honestly, um, one of the things that I've done that I, I like, while I was gone fundraising all of that time, and I spend time now on, on the phone with investors and occasionally with potential investors, I, I try to time box that as much as possible. But um, I, I'm all, I probably did 95% or more of the fundraising process work myself and at least 90% of the investor relations, 90, 95% of the investor relations and that kind of thing myself so that the rest of the team can focus on like, you know, we're not here. We don't exist to raise money from investors we yeah. exist to, to be successful. Um, with that said, um, I, I'm not giving anything away to say that we're, we're currently not profitable. Um, and, and so we certainly, think about how, you know, I, I certainly think about what that means and, and what, um, you know, my, my first and foremost job is to uh, make sure we don't run out of money, right? Nobody else, yeah. everybody else loses the job if, if we run out of money and the game's <laughs> over, right? Right. <laughs> you, theoretically, you can overcome anything as a company except running out of money. <laughs> yeah. Um, a bit of a simplification, but, but, uh, true in some ways too. So, um, so I, I definitely, um, you know, and I, and I, and I talk to our current investors and in particularly, I try to keep it a smaller group of current investors that I, you know, actively talk about this with, because honestly it's, it takes time for somebody yeah. to, for me to give information that I can get good advice and then to take the advice and, if you talk to five investors, you're going to get five slight, somewhat different pieces of advice mm -hmm. and it's helpful to a point, but at some point it's just like, you know, you gotta, you gotta, you just gotta act. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and so, that, you know, I, I'm certainly thoughtful of it and, um, and I try to keep all of the doors I can keep open, open until we get closer to when we, we need to raise money. Um, and then I can, you know, hopefully be in the best position to figure out the best raising strategy then given what our sales are and, you know, what our burn rate is and, and, um, you know, what, where, you know, just for the business of that. Yeah. Okay. Last question. Uh, any, any last piece of advice, things we haven't covered, any advice that's, you know, resonating from those talk to five investors and uh, one of them, one nugget sticking in your head or anything you would do differently if you're going to approach fundraising all over again for your next startup? Any, yeah. Well, I think like one of the things that, that has served me well is um, thinking, and this is both in terms of thinking about raising money and dealing with external forces as well as internally in the company is that ultimately the only thing I can change is myself. <laughs> mm -hmm. So if you're, not, um, if you're not getting the results you want, whether it's sales growth or it's, um, you know, investors signing on at the terms you want or whatever, um, you know, you, 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 I always go back to like, I always first say, well, why? And in particular, what can I do? Differently, because it's really easy to blame other people, and it's really easy to be frustrated. And you know, every yeah. person feels, feels frustration at times. 
but you know you got to power through it and say well well you know what is it that i can do about this and and as an entrepreneur one you're going to have so many things that are frustrating that you have to be able to be like this is you know what maybe there's something i can do maybe not but honestly like this would be way too much work than it's worth to fix right now or to make better and you have to be able to let it go if it just eats at you, like you, you, you know, it's already hard enough to focus on the things that you do have leverage with. Yeah. Um, and, and, um, you know, but I, I will say one of the thing, I think I've made a lot better decisions because I've been willing to, uh, I, I've, I've been introspective and willing to think, you know, what is it that I can do differently? And, and, and that's been my go-to and um you know and, and i've gotten feedback from our investors and others that that um you know that, that that's one of the things that they thought has had the most impact on our success is that um you know i am i am not at all hesitant to try an idea and i and take a risk but i also am it's not it's no there's no shame in being wrong there's shame in not looking to see whether you're wrong or not admitting that you were wrong. Mm. Like it, I don't work for Coke and I don't, I'm not just trying to keep selling something that I know works. I'm trying to build something that nobody's ever proven works. So if I, if I make no mistakes along the way, then I'm not, I, I'm, I'm not a risk taker enough. Right. There's no shame in being wrong. It's, it's just, you know, if you, if you double down on being wrong, that's when you're going to, kill your business. Mm, that's good. Okay. This is great. Um, so if people want to learn more, it's uh, embarkvet.com, correct? Yep. Uh, and anything you want to uh, call attention to or promote or plug or open job recs, anything, any call to action? Well, sure. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, we've got a lot of, a lot of cool product features up our sleeves. We're going to be releasing in the fall and the lead up to to um, the Christmas season and uh, you know a lot of cool social things. I actually just found out it's my dog, the mix that, that looks like a kind of like a border collie Australian cattle dog, but a lot bigger. But her, her uh, I actually just found out the dog that um, is most related to her in our database is like a is a um, purebred golden retriever who's like her great aunt or something. So yeah. Really, really. Interesting. Uh, so you, you'll never know what you'll you'll find. Um, and right now, uh, we have a promotion with Alpha. So there's a movie coming out from Sony August 17th, and um, and we're doing some cross promotion. It's, it's all about the taming of the wolf, basically. The, the uh, interesting looking movie. Uh, they haven't let me see it yet, but but it sounds very interesting. And uh, and during this period till August 17th, we have a thirty dollar off sale in conjunction with with Sony. So if you go to our website, there's a banner and, and uh, it has a coupon code and, and you can get $30 off. Perfect. Cool. Well, this is great. This is really fun stuff. I'm, uh, I'm excited to get our poodle mix and then play with your, uh, your product at some point here. <laughs> um, Sounds good. All right. Yeah. This is good. Well, thank you, Ryan. Yeah, let me know when you, uh, let me know when you get, get your uh, poodle mix and, and I can see what I can do for you, okay? <laughs> yeah, well, I, if I had my druthers, it would be like 5% poodle and, you know, 95% something a little cooler, but um, we'll see. Um, 
All right, Ryan, this is awesome. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And good luck on your next round and good luck with, with your startup. Really good stuff. All right. All right. Bye. Bye. Bye.